1: Hi,
0: Louise. Here we are for our final review of Journey (sighs) of the Adopted Self and our season two finale. I can't believe we're here. I can't believe it either. Somebody asked me yesterday, how long have you been doing
1: this? And I was, you know, I used to throw out a few months, but now I'm like, oh, like a year and a half almost. I mean, this is legitimately our passion now. So it
0: is. I love it. Which, by the way, Oh, it's our final chapter review of Journey of the Adopted Self by Betty Jean Lifton. This chapter is called The Best Interests of the Adopted Child. Yeah. Which we still... This book was written 30 years ago.
1: Let me yeah. just say that. And um, I don't know that we've gotten to The Best interests of the Adopted
0: Child. I'm not sure that we have. So it's pretty clear what this little last bit is about, but I'm going to read... This allowed for anybody who hasn't read it and just for anybody who is thinking about adopting or in this world at all, here is what the best interests of the adopted child can only be served when society recognizes the need for standards in the adoption field that protect the child, placing adoption practice in the hands of unbiased child welfare specialists, trained in the psychology of the adopted, and without a profit motive. This would eliminate the need to advertise for babies and safeguard their interests. When the child is seen as a real person, not a fantasy child, not an idealized child, not a special child, not a commodity, but a child with his own genetics, their own talents, and their own identity. When the child is allowed to grow up in an open environment without secrets about who they are or where they come from. Including the right to an unamended birth certificate and to contact with their birth family. When everyone recognizes the adopted child for what they are, a child with two sets of parents that give them a dual identity. When the adoptive parents and the birth parents respect how they have filled each other's needs so that they can come together in some form of extended family for the sake of the child. Everyone realizes that the best interests of the child are in the best interests of the adoptive family the birth family and society. Thank you for reading it. Amen. I
1: I think it's great. I mean, she just has that way with words where it's like, okay, it's almost the Bible right there. There you go. I mean,
0: that is as transparent (laughs) as you can get. And there is no ifs, ands, or buts about that. And it's still an uphill battle. It is. It's still a fight that everyone's trying to, you know, I don't know. We're not not there
1: yet. We're not there and the country's torn about it. But I think the more we educate, the more people talk about it, the more people on all sides talk about it. Birth mothers, everybody that can get in there and talk about it or listen to things or share with their own families. It's, you know, that's a cause. So, yeah. I love our podcast. I'm so excited we do this I together. Do too.
0: We're going to be back very soon. We don't yep. do any downtime here. We're going to go straight into season <laughs> three and another book and some yep. great guests. So, I can't wait.
1: And our guest yeah. this week is really, she's powerful. So yes. I'm excited.
0: Yes. we we'll big excited. Yeah. It's a great guest coming up. Coming up. Through, see you soon. A couple soon. minutes. See you soon. <laughs> and wait. What, what do we say? Oh, it's another great oh, episode Oh, wait a minute. No, we season. don't say that here. It's been, another, it's been a great season.
1: Yeah, let's say it's another great season. Because another great season. But someday we'll look back and go, wow, that was so long ago. Yes. <laughs> See you guys soon. See you soon. Bye. Bye.
0: Hey, we just want to give a shout out to all of our Patreons to say thank you. We are so grateful for your support and can't thank you enough. We're so close to being able to bring this podcast to you weekly. We just need a few more Patreons to get us there. So if you want to be one of those that pushes us over, we'd love it. You can go to patreon.com and search adoption, the making of me. So many people have reached out wanting to be guests and coming to you weekly will give voice to adoptees that want to tell their story. Your support will help us get there. Any amount is appreciated. Thank you. Good morning. We're here for another episode and today we have a listener that has joined us and filled out a submission on our website, adoptionthemakingofme.com. So let's introduce Lisa King. Welcome hey, Lisa. Lisa.
2: Welcome. Good morning. Thanks for having me. Thank you for the opportunity to put all these pieces together and share with other like-minded people who I know have experienced a lot of what I'm going to talk about today. So without further ado, I was born in 1957. And so now I'm 65 years old. I was born in Washington, D.C. to a young unwed college sophomore who put herself in unwed mother care, as they said. She relinquished me immediately. That was the plan. And for the next six months, I was in a couple of different foster care Situations. And then I was adopted by my adoptive parents in Richmond, Virginia. And this was six months later. They couldn't have children, but really wanted two children. So, two years later, they adopted my brother, my adoptive brother, who has never been much like me. We've never been close as siblings, completely different worldviews, politics, religion, everything. He'd never had an interest in finding out his roots, but I have continued through my life to kind of explore all those lost selves and what happened and how adoption has impacted my life. I always felt like the black sheep in my family. Didn't know why. They didn't tell me I was adopted till mm-hmm. approximately third grade. I never felt like I fit in my early years. And I had many elementary school Situations that kind of echo that not belonging feeling. And I think I shared one of them with you all when I wrote in that I remember going to first grade. And at the end of the day, I'd come home and sit under my desk, which I still have because it's an, an antique and I inherited it. But I would sit under my desk and just cry and cry and cry because I didn't look like anybody in my family. And my best friend, whose name was also Lisa looked exactly like her parents. They both had red hair. They both had pointy noses. I mean, the whole nine yards. And I couldn't I couldn't reconcile this. And I don't know if my parents told me then or if it was actually later that I was adopted, but that was kind of my experience growing up was always not understanding and feeling sort of like a misfit, not matching other people. You know, I, I really believe my life story is one of, abandonment. However, I have struggled throughout life in abandoning myself over and over and over again, distrusting myself, distrusting my intuitions, my knowledge, giving up myself or in search of, I think, unconditional love and also looking in the wrong places for those kinds of things, just trying to belong and fit.
1: I like how you said that, abandoning yourself. I don't know that I've yeah. never thought of it that way.
2: Oh, my goodness. It, it, it's a core of me. I mean, somebody else me too. abandoned us at birth or whenever, but I have continued. And I've been through probably a third of my life has been in therapy, trying mm-hmm. to figure all these pieces Same. out, and, and trying to reintegrate all these orphans that I have inside of me, partially due, I think, to the adoption And yes, one of the themes has been the abandonment of my own self in search of something outside of myself that I have needed to find inside me. So Mm -hmm. it has been a a story of abandonment, I think. I
0: I heard something interesting the other day. There's a difference between fitting in and belonging. Like Mm. you can fit in, but that sense of belonging is is to be the elusive thing. Yes. Because I think that chameleon aspect of adoptees, being able to fit in in any group, you know. That's right. Never really feeling like you belong.
2: Yeah. Finding a niche where I could be a a part of, but not really being a sense of it. And a lot of that came out in my teenage years, I think when I was trying to be a bad girl, but I think I was really a good girl. And And I'd follow the crowd. I started doing drugs and alcohol at 13 years old. You know, I was hanging out with girls who seem to know how to be in relationships with boys, and I never did. Mm. I was always the one that was looking for a boyfriend, looking for a connection, but it wasn't returned in the same way. I seemed to always be the one who was helping my friends hook up with a relationship, but it was secretly me that wanted the relationship. And I, I just didn't know how to do it. I had so much fear Of intimacy and distrust. And I felt ashamed of my fear. I didn't feel like what they were doing was right for me. Yet I felt like I should be doing it because everybody else is doing it. Meaning whatever, really. How was your relationship with your adoptive parents? It took many years to be okay. I mean, when they did tell me I was adopted, which I think was at third grade, not when I was crying under my desk, but I think it was later, you know, I got the story about being chosen, but I never bought it. I I really (laughs) never bought it. The other side of that story, of course, is feeling fatally flawed. I mean, absolutely must have been unlovable for her to give me up. And, you know, my adoptive family was a wonderful, middle-class, loving couple. I grew up in an extended family of educated, intelligent, thoughtful artists and craftsmen and, you know, parents who are engineers, etc. But I was the problem. I mean, I really was awful as a teenager and had many troubles into adulthood, Still, still struggling, I think, in some ways. But I mean, I gave them a hell. I really <laughs> did, but I never felt like I belonged to them. And did your brother give them hell too? No, I was the outcast. And he never had, as I said, never any interest in finding his, his biological parents. No struggles, seemingly, you know, very fluid, even going life. A lot of denial, I must yeah. say. And I think that's why we had trouble even getting along because I was always in search of something. Something was missing and I I didn't know what it was. So if we fast forward a little bit at age, I think it was 21, I opted to get the unidentifying information from the Children's Home Society where my mother had placed me, I guess. I don't really understand how that works. The Unwed Mother Care or organization, how that's connected to Children's Home Society or the Catholic Charities or whatever. I guess they're two separate, separate parts here. But anyway, at 21, I got that unidentifying information. It was a page and a half on my mother and about two sentences about my father. And my mom had been, like I said, a college student. She loved this man dearly, who was 26 years old. He was an artist and was in the Marine Corps about to finish a tour of duty. And he had a fellowship to study art in Paris. And it says she knew that her love wasn't returned to the same degree. And that if she told him that she was pregnant, Mm. that he would give up his fellowship and stay for the marriage, which in the papers, it says she knew it wasn't the basis for a sound marriage. So she opted to put me up for adoption versus telling this man who she'd loved for years that she was having a baby. And this is, I've struggled with this for many years. I mean, I have two opposing feelings. It's like, well, good for her for standing up, for knowing that it wasn't a relationship that had any longevity, probably, and that she decided to do this without his knowledge. On the other hand, you know, I've never searched for him. There was no idea. This was a closed adoption. She never told him. She went back to her life. I, I really, for all these years, have felt like I don't have any, I don't have any options for finding him. So I've let that go.
1: What about DNA now?
2: i would be 91, wouldn't he? He'd be about 91. Ooh, 91 yeah. So I don't know if that's something I really want to devote energy to. It, it's interesting though, because I became an artist as I grew up. So there's that, you know, there's that pull. But you know, when I read that those papers, I have to read it to you because I've read them so many times I can just about recite, you know, what what it says. But it said that Lisa's mother is unmarried. Her father does not know of her existence. The mother believed that marriage wasn't possible now because of his plans to study as an artist in Paris. She didn't tell him. She requested adoption placement on the basis that adoption was best, that it offered the baby normal home experience with a mother and father. Her, rec- her decision included a recognition of the difficulty for herself of keeping Lisa an illegitimate child. Mm-hmm. Oh, my God. When I heard those words for the first time, I felt a severing that was so deep and wounding. I mean, illegitimate to me mm-hmm. is...
0: Awful word. Awful Awful. to to label a human being. Oh, yeah.
2: You get wiped off the face of the earth by Mm -hmm. just the the mere mention of that word. I know. Horrible. I spent a lot of time in therapy on that very idea.
1: I'm wondering, too, like someone's taking this in the second person, you know, taking down these notes, because my biological mother also chose to relinquish me. And I can't meet her because she's not alive. But I think what was really... I mean, it sounds so prepackaged in a way. I don't know how to it say does. that correctly.
2: No, no, I agree. And the more I'm understanding about the culture and the society of the time, you know, it makes me wonder about these caseworkers. Yes. Pressure. My mom never, I don't think she ever chose to tell her own parents because mm. it says they were good church-going people. Yeah. <laughs> 1957, you know. College girl gets herself pregnant.
1: Also, like she, oh, she knows it's best for him. Like, I wonder if there's a little pressure there too. That just you might know more to the story, but that's how it sounds.
2: But I've read it within that context of you know, knowing that those caseworkers were often restrictive and mean and and Mm -hmm. just downright cruel in some ways, very pressurizing. And so I don't really know what her true her true nature was, or her true feelings about this adoption were. So I lived with the two pages. That was fine until I had my own two children, my two biological children. And when they were born, both of them, I felt like they came out of me and I instantly knew them. And I think I read this or heard this from other people as well, but I felt like I knew them inside out. Yep. That's who you are. Okay. I've known you for nine months. I immediately wanted to lick them all over, almost like animals do. <laughs> it was a weird, I mean, you know, my husband at the time were like, this is freaking weird, but mm. that's what I felt. Like. And I couldn't imagine how my own biological my mother must have felt when that mm. occurred, that instant severing, you know, of this person that she'd known for nine months. And for me, the person I'd known and felt Hormones, feelings, cycles, everything for nine months. How traumatic that really, really must be.
0: Yeah.
2: You know, and, you know, I must mention here, one of the people I follow in my spiritual growth, I guess you'd say, is a a Hungarian MD and psychologist named Gabor Mate. Oh, yes. Yeah. Oh, my gosh. He is. Wow.
0: I know. I don't know.
2: I think I'm addicted to him. Yes. But, you, you know, and anyway, Him and
0: Paul Sunderland, too, is
2: pretty. Oh, I like Paul yes, Sunderland. yes. And they speak so eloquently about the, the traumas, traumas that lead to addictions, especially traumas of childhood, of fetuses in the womb, and not trauma in terms of what happened to you, like big PTSD, This is, and I think I can quote him in saying that trauma is what you do with what happened to you, what you do inside of yourself, Uh. response to the things that happened to you. And I really, I've never had any major traumatic, you know, abuses in my family or, you know, things like that. But I remember many, many microaggression type things that, My response to them, I think, has often related to that initial severing and abandonment right after birth.
1: I'm glad you're bringing that up because I think in conversations I've had with people, they think, oh, you have to have this big thing happen to you to have a trauma and you beat yourself up inside from things we don't even know. I mean,
0: well, I'd say being relinquished at birth is a big trauma,
1: but I don't think others see it that way, right? I mean we're educated. I mean, well, they would see
0: it if a mother died in childbirth Um, or a mother died in a car accident and the child was was taken away. That is trauma, but they don't seem I think that's changing though. I did obviously the culture has changed and and it's being recognized and talked about it and moved into the mainstream a little more.
2: And I think that's true because look at all the research and the books that are out on adoption itself now. Mm -hmm. Uh Uh-huh. And you're right. When you're a fetus or a newborn child, you don't have the language or the words to make sense of what's happening to you. So, of course, that stuff is internalized. Mm-hmm. And, you know, I can think of many, many incidents in my childhood that were just minor little infractions of, you know, somebody called me a name or I was a chubby little kid. And I was my <laughs> uncle used to call me Biscuit Bottom or Whale Tail. Well. <sighs> Guess what? I developed many eating disorders, anorexia, bulimia throughout my young adult years, reconciling those kinds of little things. So I totally believe in Gabor Mate's you mm. know, studies of mm-hmm. what trauma really is and what it can do to a person. And I also think that severing and relinquishment must have affected my mother throughout her Adult life as well. And I'll tell you why. After my children were born, I embarked on the fee-based search with Children's Home Society. I wanted more information. It took about four years, and they finally let me know that they had found that she died of emphysema, of health issues, etc. But they did find a half-brother. Actually, they found three half-brothers. And so they connected me with my oldest half brother who I went out to Rhode Island and met did many did many all people.
0: three half brothers have the same father
2: yes okay my mother had gotten actually married 5 years later to her boss an executive in some big firm it sort of it sort of reads like the season the what's it called madman the madman exactly <laughs> i've seen pictures of she and her husband together and the bouffant hair. And the, she was the secretary and event planner for this high-powered executive. So they got married, had three boys. But my half-brother told me that he he had always felt like he had a sister out there somewhere, but he didn't know why. He also shared with me that my mother had told the three boys at some point that she'd had a little girl who had died in childhood. Uh. And I don't know if she meant she'd had me, this was probably me, but had me before the marriage or she had me during the marriage or whatever, but it's couched in secrets and shame. My brother told me she also struggled with many addictions and mental health issues throughout you know, her life with the family, et cetera. She never told the husband that he knows of. She never told my brothers. So you know, I've got to believe that this woman lived in Mm. a lot of torture, a lot of shame, and the aftermath of 1957. And what happened? What she chose—it's like she wanted
1: to talk about having you, but had to make it so that you weren't alive,
2: right? So that it it might have been easier. Ironically, Mm. another severing incident here. My half brother told me that she had died in August of 1992. And during that month, I was in a horrific, this is a trauma, trauma, a horrific boat accident in which I was just a passenger and my leg was severed. Oh, my gosh. But in an instant, I became an enemy. Oh, my gosh. Wow, Lisa. And, you know, this may sound a bit far-fetched, but it, it really resonates with me. This happened in the very month that I lost my mother, too. And I liken it to the same or similar severing kind of experience I had in childbirth, where one minute, you know, one reality, and the next minute, your total reality has changed. And there's no going back. Severing is a violent, permanent separation. And I see a birth similar to that. And this traumatic accident changed the course of my life as well. And, you know, call it synchronicity, coincidence, whatever. But I I really feel like it was a connection to some kind of bigger macrocosm about my life. Yeah. A, a real metaphor, really. I mean. Real metaphor. Yep. The timing's unreal. The timing, it was really unreal. So severing has been sort of a theme, you know, for me throughout life as well. My other two brothers really had no interest in knowing me, in fact, told me not to contact them. But I'm still in contact with my half-brother. Oh, so, interestingly, you all may not have heard about this incident, but back in I don't know early 90s anyway, there was a debacle within this crematorium in Kentucky or Tennessee it was <laughs> called the Tri-state Crematorium I sort of remember this okay <laughs> so here you go so my brother says after my mom died, the FBI came to his door a year or so later and they told him about this tri-state crematorium debacle. And they said, it's possible that the ashes you have of your mom are not her ashes because this crematorium had been piling up the bodies and, you know, not not burying them and filling the the urns with dirt and crap like that. Well, so my brother shows me this picture of my mom dead, covered in a blanket, and her feet are sticking out with two (laughs) slippers on. And the slippers have bunny ears. And she demanded that when she died, she be buried in these bunny slippers. And the ears, of course, are are held up by wires inside of them. And so my brother tells the FBI agent, well, let's go look in the urn because she was buried with her bunny slippers on. And if those wires are in the urn, we'll know that that's the real mom. And sure enough, they looked in the urn and her bunny slipper wires were in the urn. So he's rest assured that that's, his, oh, that's awesome. our our real mom that they got back from the tr- So she had moved to the South at some point? Yeah, somewhere in that area. I can't remember the moving that that family did, but yes. And so I sadly know about the
1: story because my brother, my adopted brother, he has sick humor. And yeah. when my mom passed, you know, he reads all this stuff. He's like, remember, yeah. you know, we may get, remember what happened in Kentucky. Yes. <laughs> And, and I was like, heard, wait, I know it, this story. <laughs> right.
2: And I heard of this story up in Minnesota where yeah, I was, it was you know, creepy. It was like, yeah. This is crazy. And so I have seared in my brain, this picture of this dead corpse with a blanket over her and two bunny ears. <laughs>
0: <laughs> <laughs> you did your search and you had your two kids and, and you've kept in touch. And when did you start coming out of the fog? As they say.
2: I think after my children were born and I actually got to meet my brother, a lot of my need was satisfied, somewhat closure. You know, I continue searching, I think, for figuring out, as I said, all those orphan selves. I, Mm. you know, I, I still feel her presence kind of come up in me many, many times. And I'm sure I'm reading things into it but i really i'm much like my adoptive family on the outside i mean i'm i'm educated i'm a, i was a crafts person i was a professional for in disability services for many many years my extended family is all crafts people and very outgoing and and engaged in things but my inner self is still i believe really quite fragile and a bit still uncentered, I, I would say. You know, I still go to therapy, and I still look for different ways to respond to things that happen to me and and respond to the world. I, my my initial view of the world, I think, t- sometimes is still in fear and insecurity, and looking for pieces that I need to be finding in myself that I think I found a lot of. Yeah, I'm not, I'm not sure how how much better to describe that. Do you think you might ever
0: seek your father? I mean, the odds of him being alive are probably slim, but just in terms of finding out who he was and
2: I'm still very very curious about that. You know, this guy went to Paris to study arts. You know what? Who was he? I mean, you know, and did he ever think that he he had a child? That part
1: is and, really, and you don't know for sure that he doesn't know that she was pregnant. You just right. well, no. she said she didn't she tell didn't, him.
2: right? She did not tell him.
1: I feel like that you have a a limited time, as Sarah likes to remind me about
0: things. Yes, please do remind. <laughs> <me>. <laughs> we, we can do it together.
2: Even you have some
0: siblings, possibly. You mm-hmm.
2: know, I do. I do on I, his side.
0: I mean, on his side.
2: Yeah, and it's possible that he's still alive. So I it
0: may. It is possible. So. Yeah, may as well spit into that tube and send it off. <laughs> I <I'll> know. Let the <laughs> chips fall where they may.
2: Thank and you. <laughs> many years ago, I, I couldn't do that. So yeah. you know, I think there is a possibility now. It it would be interesting to to find that out.
0: Yeah. Well, will you keep right. us posted, please? I will. I
2: absolutely will.
0: I love how deep you go with this, and I'm still. Processing what you told us about your boat accident. Yeah, me too. Mm
2: -hmm. Well, that leads you into disability work. No, ironically, I had chosen disability work as a graduate study, so I was already in graduate school, and then had the boat accident. So we fast forward. I do a lot of speaking and then mentoring of amputees, etc. Now, but ironically, you know, it was like I chose that profession, but the profession found me. As right. Well. that's so
0: that is ironic. There's I so mean. many
2: layers to your story, really. And it, it, it really did become a vocation for me because I could be a very authentic, my very authentic self, with students telling them to get their ass to class and shut up. Who cares if you have ADD? You know, get on with it? On the other hand, I could tell them, "Yeah, that building doesn't have an elevator, and you're in a wheelchair. Let's go do something about that. Where's the president?
0: Yeah. You know, yeah right.
2: So I think that accent actually helped me become more of my true self than many, many other things. And I also share with, with you guys a little bit about another severing, which I won't go into, but an abrupt ending of a 25 year marriage that happened just four years ago. And again, that kind of severing that you don't get to process or transition mm-hmm. into or anything, it's just there one minute. And it's not the next. I mean, just
1: the word erupt ending after 25 years is like, oh,
2: right. Well, and I'll just say a little bit about this. You know, I became an artist, but most of my artwork I did during some really intense therapy and all of my work is nothing you'd ever want to put on your living room wall. (laughs) We may. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> it, it is of birthing, and it is of severing, and it is of rebirth and transformation. So I, I think a lot of it, as I look at it today, looking back, there are some literal images, I think, that really relate to birth. You know They said,
1: you ever think of having a show,
2: like some sort of have- show based around
1: severance and adoption?
2: I did many years ago. Went to California to um, an art therapy conference, and I, I shared the whole story. It wasn't as in depth and connected to my adoption because I've learned internalized so much more now. But yes, I did share all of that. Where can we see your? Yeah, I think it's really cool. Yeah, yeah. My daughter, bless her heart, she's a college student now, and she has plastered her walls and ceiling with all this work. Oh. <laughs> It's raw. I mean, I'm telling you, it is. It's freaking raw. So, but, but that's yeah, art. That's okay. I think available yeah. because it really pregnancy and birth and transformation. And this is all a lot. Not all, but a lot of it is metaphorical too, because it's therapy going on and you know rebirthing of myself. But it absolutely relates to my beginnings in the world. Yeah. Well, please, well, please, please love send us see time. it. Yes. Yeah, I continue to quest to further my understanding about. My beginnings of how they've shaped and impacted my life. I think I have an adoptive family who I've shared life experiences with, but I also had a birth mother who is responsible for my becoming a person at all. My Mm -hmm. self-development has been a byproduct of the history my birth mother gave me genetically and the environment that was afforded me by my adoptive family. Oh, Lisa, no.
0: this has really been amazing. Thank you so much. Uh, Love
1: the talking to you. And me too. And- I feel like I want to keep up with you and have you do like cool art show, and we're gonna spend the two. I'll, like, I'll, let us
2: know. I'll, I'll figure out how to make the art available to you. It may be I'm not technological very much either, but. Maybe I could send it just to the emails you sent me. Yeah, for
0: sure. Yes, and also keep us posted on if you decide to <laughs> do a search. i are really wanting to know.
2: Thinking about it. Yes. Okay. Yes. Keep well, us posted. I will. All Thanks right.
0: for joining us, Lisa. Really Thank appreciate you. your generosity Thanks. and sharing your story.
2: Oh, we are Following you and your your chapter. So keep it up. Thank you. Thank you, Lisa.
1: Well, Lisa, and she. Just the severance
0: part. I know. And her wisdom and also just that ability to not be a victim, right? She never, yes. she could have taken that boat accident and gone a whole different direction. And then instead she's now saying she thinks it made her more the person she is. And I really admire that. I do too. And I do think it's somewhat
1: cosmically connected or whatever, because it seems like she's kind of found that whole thing is a connector of all her life, right? Mm -hmm. Coming together. Severance being being, being the theme. Yeah. And what she said about abandoning yourself. I mean, we know this, but I never really, there's something about what she said almost made me cry immediately. It was like, oh God, I feel that in our childhood and other things. I've never really Mm -hmm. summed it up like that, I guess.
0: Yeah. As she was saying that, I was thinking about how I feel like I've lived a large portion of my life outside my body, you know, and that was how I coped to not be in my body for many years. So it's a similar kind of abandoning of the self. It is. Yeah. yeah. She was really
1: poignant and mm-hmm. I loved, loved getting to know her and I want her to do the test.
0: Yes, we too <laughs> time's hopefully, ticking. hopefully she will. Lisa, time's ticking.
2: What okay. Else? Well,
0: what do we say? Another great episode. Another great episode. See you next time. Thanks so much for listening today.
1: And remember, if you'd like to share your stories or suggest any guests for our show, you can find us on all the socials at The Making of Me Podcast.
0: And again, we have a Patreon page so that we can continue to bring these great adoption stories to you. So if you want to find that and donate or contribute in any way, find us at patreon.com searching adoption colon The Making of Me. Bye. See you next time.